But a lot of what I've focused on has been minority group ethnicity. So when we're talking about diasporas or secession, uh, in many cases that's to do with secessionist minority groups rather than a majority group. Um, but what I want to talk about today is the dominant ethnic group uh, or the majority ethnic group which has been received less treatment in the literature than uh, minority groups. So this is Partly when we talk about the far right, it'll be a story about the ethnic majority group in many Western uh, European countries. Um, and really there are two distinct aims with dominant ethnic nationalism. That is, the nationalism of the ethnic majority or the, power, the most powerful ethnic group in the country as distinct from ethnic minorities, whereas ethnic minority groups might be undertaking secessionist movements or rebel violence. And when you come to the majority groups, the two motives typically are either uh, enhanced political control by a dominant group. So think, for example, um, control of the English over British politics, or a better example coming from the developing world might be, say, the control of the Sinhalese over Sri Lanka, their control over the Tamil areas of Sri Lanka, or in Fiji, the control of the dominant Fijian group over all of Fiji, including the Indians of Fiji. So it's some sort of ethnic dominance. On the one hand, political power. And on the other hand, it has to do with this idea of nativism. Um, and, and that is more to do with the cultural uh, congruence between the dominant group and the dominant ethnic group and the nation. Um, so in the second case, the group wishes to maintain uh, homogeneity, an ethnic homogeneity of a country. So hopefully that will become a bit more clear. Right. Here's a picture of Jörg Heider, who's uh, no longer with us, of course, but um, whose party in Austria did the, the Freedom Party did uh, extremely well, got 35% of the vote. Uh, what is the, and if we look actually at the, at the far right, we can see a, a story of relative increase in support since the mid-1980s in Western Europe. It's a very important phenomenon. It goes against a lot of the other kinds of trends towards, say, gender equality and, and changes in attitudes in a liberal direction that were recorded in much of the Western world. Against that trend, you have uh, what seems to be a counter trend, which is the rise of the far right. Uh, and in the West, it's primarily about cultural issues, or at least one can make the argument that it is has a very strong cultural component. That is, it is to do with immigration and cultural change, rather than with a power issue about who is going to dominate you know, the political apparatus, which is more common outside the Western world in far-right movements. So outside the Western world, and here's a picture of George Spade who led a coup in Fiji in 2000. Uh, we can look at other cases such as the rise of the uh, BJP Hindu nationalists in India, uh, or the rise of Sinhalese ethnic nationalism in Sri Lanka are all cases of where you really, it's not about immigration. Re, it's not so much about migration and uh, demographic change as it is about who's got power and whether the dominant group is going to be able to push its agenda. Um, 
I mean, in the case of uh, in the case of Fiji, really, it was the case that the dominant uh, Fijian group, which which forms about 50% of the population of Fiji, felt that a, co a coalition was voted in led by an Indian, and it was felt that the Indians, who formed about 45% of the population, um, were taking power in what the Fijians regarded as "quote unquote" our country. In other words that Fiji is really the country for the ethnic Melanesian Fijians, and so it's not right to have, uh, to be governed by an Indian coalition. So this was what was behind the coup. So notice in both cases, this is about a, an ethnic majority group that considers itself to be the, the, uh, the indigenous group, the group that first settled the country, and therefore has some sort of a, a right to rule. And that idea of being indigenous lies behind a lot of nationalism. That is, that, that you know, this is our country, you are a foreigner. Uh, it also lies behind, for example, secession, in the sense that even if you look at, for example, uh, East Timor or Scotland as a secessionist movement, part of the argument is to say, well, um, we're the indigenous group here, and we shouldn't be ruled by, say, the English, or we shouldn't be ruled by the Indonesians, who are not really natives of this territory. So that's a commonality between both the minority and the majority type uh, ethno-nationalism. Just then sticking with these, this majority or dominant type of ethnic nationalism, part of what's going on here is an issue of ethnic boundaries and wanting to make, make sure that the ethnic boundary lines and the state boundary lines coincide, so there's a congruence between ethnicity defined by myths of genealogical descent and nationalism as defined by politics and territory. So the, an attempt, when those are seen to be drifting apart, that's where you get uh, this kind of ethnic nationalism. So you get a narrative or rhetoric of impurity or inauthenticity of uh, non-native groups, be they foreign rulers, be they foreign immigrants, and so on. And so there's that attempt then at some kind of cultural purification, foreign influence, or foreign control, which is there. Sometimes also you have um, myths that are profounded about when the group was in some way authentic and pure and powerful, and the desire is then put forth to return to a golden age. You know, in Western Europe, it might be, I don't know, the period just after World War II or before World War II or whatever. So it would be this kind of idea of some kind of a golden age prior to either being conquered or foreign influence. But in the case of dominant ethnic nationalism, in many cases now, it's to do with foreign migration and, and diversity. So this idea of a time before all of the diversity arrives. Um, so this is part of this narrative then of dominant ethnic nationalism. So uh, now another interesting feature, I suppose, of dominant ethnic nationalism is the um, is the class and status dynamics because it seems to have more resonance amongst lower socioeconomic strata and um, <coughs> strata with lower levels of education. So there is a link in almost every study, which we'll see in a minute, between um, lower levels of education and stronger support for far-right parties, stronger opposition to immigration, and so on. And one of the things, or one of the questions we wish to ask today is why that is the case. Why it should be the case that 
um, those were lower down the socioeconomic scale. I'm talking about the dominant group. So, for example, the white working class or whites without university education, for example, in the U.S. or in Britain and so on, uh, are more supportive than of these sorts of perspectives. So is it because of a cultural threat, that is, a threat to what is perceived as the, the link between ethnic boundaries and nation-state boundaries, and that, that there is now a, a wedge being driven between those two things. Uh, so is it about the ethno-symbolic position, myths, symbols, memories, uh, golden ages, before impurity, etc., all of these cultural symbolic issues, or is it more about uh, the basic issue of labor competition at the bottom end of the income distribution? So in other words, people coming in and competing for jobs. Is that a more important point? Or could it even be displaced economic anxieties about globalization and unemployment displaced onto the issue of immigration. Okay. Uh, just to look at the rise of the far right in Western Europe, uh, it's interesting to note that while there has been a long tradition of far right parties in Western Europe, in many cases, um, some of the issues that they were concerned about, if we just take France for a minute, um, you know, restoration of the Catholic Church the monarchy, uh, small shopkeeper movement, some of these issues, or anti-Semitism, some of these issues really lost a lot of their appeal post-Second World War. And so even though you did have these movements, uh, particularly in Fr not France, not only in France, they never seemed to gain large-scale, durable traction. So for example, one issue in France was the, uh, the loss of the colonies in, in Vietnam and Algeria and so forth. And you had a lot of people returning settlers, French settlers returning from North Africa who were a mainstay of support for some of the far-right movements in the 1950s and 1960s. But that issue is more or less, more or less finished uh, within the span of you know, five, ten years. It was not an issue anymore. So you had a kind of rising and falling of support for the far-right prior to the 1980s, not a durable, steady level of support, whereas since the mid to late 1980s, actually a lot of these parties have seen pretty durable levels of support. The Front National, yes, uh, Jean-Marie Le Pen is no longer the leader, but under their new leader, they look to be doing extremely well in the French elections. And it's a, another instance of where people claim that once Jean-Marie Le Pen left, you would get a drop in support, but actually the support seems to have been pretty stable. Uh, also, a difference between the older, more fascist-oriented parties, which have a heritage going back before World War II, um, the new far-right parties generally are uh, democratic. That is, they believe in the electoral process, popular support. So they're populist rather than uh, strictly fascist, where fascism is referring to a sort of authoritarian, anti-democratic type of uh, party. So that's an interesting difference. Um, and also, are less interested in sort of these grand, radical, utopian transformations, and more, it's just more about uh, reductions of diversity and immigration. Uh, here is a chart that shows you some of the trends across about 10, 12 different European countries since the 1980s. Um, you can see that you know there is a lot of variation, but there is also a lot of a lot of these graphs or these trends are sort of with ups and downs, broadly moving in an upward direction. 
So you actually see some quite significant um, you know, support for the far right in this sort of 10, 15% range, which is actually, given that these parties are, are campaigning on a very narrow set of issues and they're not really addressing the, the, the whole set of issues that voters care about, it's quite surprising that they're able to achieve um, the kind of vote shares that they, they have been able to achieve. It's worth mentioning for a minute the political science of this that in some countries, such as the United Kingdom, which has a first-past-the-post electoral system where if you're a small party, it's very hard for you to actually get representation at Westminster. So you would expect, just by virtue of that political system, a party like the BNP is going to have much greater difficulty getting in, whereas in much of the rest of Europe, you have a first-past-the-post. Yeah, so that's representation this is actually just voting support. Sorry, this is just the percentage of the electorate that supports a far-right party. This is so, but it perhaps might, to the extent that the party doesn't do well in terms of seats, then that could affect perhaps its support. But yeah, this is this is raw um, voter support for these parties. Um, and so you see a spread of different support um, in terms of share of the popular vote. Uh, UK. In terms of Western Europe, the UK is one of the lower, but if you look at some of the other countries, Switzerland, Austria, Denmark, so on, as high as, in some cases, 35%, as we saw in the Austrian example. So, quite a significant phenomenon. Uh, and, and part of the argument here uh, is, to, is that this is very much linked to uh, post-1960s trends in immigration. Um, both the volume of immigration and the sources of immigration. Much of the sources of migration in Europe, for example, was from other European countries prior to sort of the 1950s. So you had particularly Southern Europeans, Eastern Europeans coming to Western Europe. That's still going on, but nothing on nothing like the scale. Uh, well, Eastern Europeans, yes, but, but for Southern Europeans, no. Um, so you have more diverse sources of, of immigration, increasingly non-European, uh, so the share of Western Europe's population made up of non, uh, those of non-European origin is sort of on the order of maybe, you know, four or five percent or so. It's not a large share, but it's considerably larger than it might have been, say, 20, 30, or 30, 40 years ago. Uh, not only in Western Europe, we can also look at uh, public opinion surveys in the United States, Australia. This is coming actually from Australia. Um, from the Australian election studies, and it's looking at, it's tracking uh, um, opinion on this question of whether there are, uh, whether we should reduce immigration or whether immigration has gone too far or gone much too far. So those saying that there are too many immigrants, it's kind of went up and down a little bit in the sort of 50s, 1960s. Um, and there is still a whole lot of variability, but there is also, to some extent, you see a broad rising trend from about the 1960s, 70s. So that's, a, that's an interesting trend. And in the late 1990s, you had the One Nation Party in Australia, which got 10% of the vote. Now that 10% of, of the popular vote, it doesn't sound like a huge amount, but for Australia, which is a you know traditionally relatively open country in terms of migration, in terms of, it is quite a surprise. It hasn't been repeated. It's not at European levels, but it's still surprising that in um, in a country like Australia, that you would also get this, this phenomenon. Uh, I want to point again to the role of education and class in mediating this immigration sentiment. 
So uh, in Australia, you can see that those with a professional or tertiary qualification, in other words, a well, broadly speaking, a university background, only about a third of the respondents said immigration was too high, whereas amongst those with a primary or secondary education, high school or less, uh, the numbers are much higher, almost double. Um, and that's not just Australia. This is uh, a survey from 1980 in the United States. Roughly a similar kind of question asking Americans, um, are you in favor of halting immigration? And you get the same sort of spread. Uh, those with a primary or secondary education, 70 to 80 percent are in favor of these sorts of restrictions, whereas those with college education, it's about half that, uh, half that pattern. That pattern actually can be seen likewise in support for the far right and even for an older far right party, the Republican Party in Germany. Uh, if we, particularly if we take the younger age groups, the blue signifies those with a low level of education. And the blues, and the, this is a sort of university educated population. Uh, the university educated, amongst the younger part of the population, you see a big spread. That is, education is a big determinant of whether you are a supporter of a far right party. Like we saw in the US case in Australia with immigration sentiment, um, it seems as though education is a, is a big factor. Although curiously, for those over 60, it's the reverse. Um, but I don't know whether that's a generational thing uh, in Germany. <laughs> <laughs> to do perhaps with the, with the pre-Second World War past, I don't know. Um, so key issues that in the rise of the far right, um, we, can, we can track a whole series of changes. So liberal attitude changes on gender, sexual mores, uh, religion uh, since the 1960s. But also we've had economic sh major shifts, deindustrialization, globalization, and so on. And that's kind of where the debate is. It's partly to ask, well, how much of the rise of the far right is caused by uh, post-industrialization, decline of the manufacturing base in places like uh, the north of England or the Rust Belt of the United States? Does this loss of well-paid, skilled, blue-collar manufacturing jobs have anything to do with um, increased support for the far right? Because the economic, you know, like the kind of modernist argument would say, well, this is a lot about uh, displaced anxiety over um, de-skilling and de-industrialization, which is being displaced onto this immigration national identity question. Whereas the more ethno-symbolist cultural perspective would argue that actually it is really about ethnic and cultural changes uh, and national identity questions. So that there is a, a concern over both immigration and ethnic change, but also over uh, the issue of multiculturalism and a society shifting from being essentially more monocultural to more multicultural, and this being seen as a cultural threat. Uh, whereas the economic issue is much more about either job competition or about uh, a sense of powerlessness induced by deindustrialization. There are also other, a, a series of ancillary issues which are sometimes raised and sometimes capitalized on by far-right groups, including crime and welfare dependency, which are sometimes, uh, which they try to attach to the presence of minority groups. Um, one, again, 
just continuing on with this class theme, one of the uh, quite striking factors about the rise of the far right in Western Europe in particular is that it's drawn very heavily on what used to be the constituency for the left or the far left. So in some ways, someone who might have voted communist or for the, on the far left part of this political spectrum in a place like France or Italy um, some of those voters found a home in the far right, which you would have thought, well, it would have been people from the center right who would have drifted to the far right. But in many cases, it's actually, because of this class and education issue, uh, it's the sort of native uh, white working classes that are um, an important pool of recruitment for the far right. Uh, and part of the message is kind of an anti-elite, uh, anti-political class issue. Uh, which is an important question because in France, certainly, the thinking was that part of the appeal of the Front National was that it was a protest vote against the established French party, so people didn't like the establishment. Uh, again, that, that is more of a political, economic, modernist type of interpretation, um, which would say that it is partly a political opportunity that's opened up by the what people perceive as a failure of the center uh, to deliver um, economically. But then there's also a, a, a cultural, more ethno-symbolist interpretation, which is that this is really, uh, that the reason for this anti-elitism is because there's a sense that the elite has foreclosed debate on the issue of immigration or multiculturalism. So that would mean that actually what, I, what is of concern to the voters are these symbolic questions of the ethnic makeup of the nation state, etc. Um, but it remains a fact that in virtually no European country does the main left-wing party retain the majority support of white male working class uh, part of the electorate. So that's uh, an interesting shift. One way of conceptualizing this, and I know this woman is upside down, and that's just actually that's just an artifact of the way this kind of went into PowerPoint. And she isn't supposed to be upside down. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, is that is to say, well, you have an economic axis which runs down the center. That is, are you left-wing or right-wing on questions of redistribution of wealth, uh, power of the state? And that that is a, a different orientation to the cultural axis, which is whether you are liberal and cosmopolitan or conservative and traditionalist in some way. This is a, a scheme that was developed by Daniel Bell in the 1970s and further by a well-known political scientist, Ron Englehart, in the 1990s. Uh, and, and the argument essentially runs like this, is to say that um, regardless of whether you are to the left or to the right, that is, regardless of, your, of whether you're in favor of free markets and competition and individualism, or whether you're in favor of social welfare and redistribution, if you are a cultural conservative, you will be um, perhaps in the constituency for the far right, regardless of whether you are on the left, i.e., former communist voter or working class, or whether you're on the right, for example, small shopkeeper, what used to be called the, well, what is called the petit bourgeoisie, small shopkeeper class, small business owners, who would be culturally conservative but economically to the right, favoring low taxes and so on. And then on the other hand, those who are uh, culturally conservative but economically to the left because they are workers uh, in, in maybe union members as well. Um, whereas, in 
terms of those who are liberal in their cultural attitudes, you could have either people who work for large corporations uh, who would favor low taxes but be relatively open in the questions of immigration. Think about um, the Economist magazine or the Wall Street Journal type of voter. I mean, that would be up here, someone who's liberal culturally, but on the right economically, and then on the left, you would have So, so that's, uh, uh, but just that, that's an interesting way of thinking about uh, trying to make sense of the idea that you can be strongly on the left and be um, part of the core support base for anti-immigration politics. And I want to introduce to some of the um, coalition politics of the far right, because what's important about the far right is not just the far right vote and the far right support, but the fact that right has managed to enter the coalition on a number of occasions with the center-right or center party, and in that way gained some policy influence, not complete policy influence, but some policy influence, to show you how this might work here. Um, let's look at Italy in 1994, the 1994 elections. The number of seats required for the, for the winning party to achieve a majority, for the center-right to achieve a majority in Italy's legislature is 316 seats. They only won 261. That's not enough for them to get into government. But in alliance with the Northern League, uh, and so in alliance with the far right, they get up to 366, which is a bigger number than that and allows them to form a majority. So what's happening in some cases is that you get, in certain elections, 2001 in Italy, 99, 2002 in Austria, Netherlands here, and so on, the far right is acting as a kind of kingmaker in terms of um, coalition politics and allowing center-right parties to come into power. And so therefore, you're seeing a certain policy influence. And that actually manifests itself in many ways, tightening up of immigration laws, um, rolling back of multiculturalism in some cases. In fact, in all, pretty well all parts of Europe after the late 1990s, you get this sort of rollback effect of multiculturalism. So again, trying to return to the theories of this, there are three theories. And of course, these are the two most important ones. I can also introduce a, a third. But the ones you're familiar with is the sort of instrumentalist or modernist argument, uh, which is, again, that uh, the upsurge of the rise of the far right since the late 1980s has been driven by uh, either labor competition at the bottom end of the labor market between the white working class and uh, immigrant workers, or on the other hand, has to do with uh, globalization and a crisis in the caused by deindustrialization, which leads to uh, dissatisfaction with the political elites and with the established parties. So that dissatisfaction with the established parties were no longer providing jobs for life and uh, the kind of good manual labor jobs that used to exist, then we sort of crisis in the political system. And when there's a crisis in the political system, this provides an opportunity, what's known as a political opportunity structure, for uh, third parties, far-right parties, and so on. Whereas the ethno-symbolist explanation would be that there is, that is not to do with this kind of economic change, but more to do with the simple cultural changes brought in by um, new minority groups from other parts of the world, larger numbers. So the kind of ethnic demographic shift 
in the population is seen as a, a threat to the congruence between uh, the ethnic majority and what it perceives as its country or its national identity. So that is where um, the ethnosymbolists would put it. Uh, now, in the literature, you'll encounter a number of these concepts. Political opportunity structure, for example. What that's referring to is it's, it's can be, I think, slotted into a modernist argument that says um, the main parties have failed to deliver the goods in terms of jobs, in terms of income to the white working classes, native-born working classes, and therefore they are looking to other political options to express their discontent. Uh, and the fact that there is a sort of discontent with the established parties opens up market share for radical alternatives, radical left as well as radical right alternatives um, in the political structure. Uh, there are also other kinds of theories about what, uh, the rise of the far right. There's a, if you look to critical theory coming from the uh, Frankfurt School, I don't know if those of you who are familiar with the sociology of the Frankfurt School, uh, Theodore Adorno has this concept of working class authoritarianism um, linked almost to this idea of a certain style of child rearing and psychology that is found more in the working class and lends itself more to authoritarianism. This was partly a way of explaining some of working class support for uh, fascist movements in, uh, in the interwar period. So that's another form of explanation. Uh, I, I mentioned this idea of, of a sense of loss. This is actually an interesting concept in the, in the sense that it might not just be about losing your job, but it can also be about losing your status in society uh, with globalization, deindustrialization. De that is, if, if particularly the native-born, white working class man's status rested very much on that good blue-collar job, and then that loss of status. Um, and there are also theories that say that if you are, say, a, a wealthy member uh, of the middle classes, uh, globalization is not a threat to you because you're able to actually navigate that quite well. And so it's not a threat to your status. Whereas if you are a member of the native-born working class and you basically your, your most prestigious identity is your ethnic identity. And so that's part of the reason why you get the um, lower status members gravitating and clinging on more strongly to their ethnic identities, their members of the middle classes. Those of you who were at the uh, Michael Ski talk on Englishness will, will hopefully recall that he made reference to this issue of ontological security, um, the sense that you're part of something that will continue through time and that that is threatened in a way by cultural change and migration. So that idea of um, status decline and that threat of loss of status is part of this, this argument. Um, as well as loss of faith in the established parties and the political elite. There's also a, a final argument, which is, again, a, I think a classic modernist argument, which says it's about the elites whipping up fears. In some way, political entrepreneurs stoking up fears in the population to try to win votes. Um, the only issue there is to, the only question that begs is why these appeals, in fact, work. Why wouldn't people just say, oh, well, that's just a load of nonsense. They're not going to vote for you. So you still, even though you make this argument that it's about elites whipping up fears, 
Um, the second question that begs is why these appeals work. And I don't think that's explained adequately just by focusing on the elites. I think you have to look at why the masses in a democracy respond to these kinds of appeals. So uh, the other interesting point to make about the rise of the far right post-1980, post-mid-1980s, is that these issues such as immigration, multiculturalism, national identity, are much, much more prominent simply if you look at uh, the number of times these terms are mentioned in newspapers and so on. There have been some studies of this. Uh, those issues are much more prominent than some of the older far-right uh, concerns, such as anti-Semitism, anti-Catholicism, uh, the restoration of the monarchy, and all these other kinds of, of questions, um, which were more prominent, or, or even maintenance of colonial settlements, which were more prominent in the sort of 50s, 60s, and so on. So the far right now seems to be almost exclusively focused on these questions of national identity and migration. Uh, one other a, a way of showing this is to look at, again, look at uh, survey data. This, this is also looking at Australian survey data. Um, and the OMP is the One Nation Party, which is the far right party in Australia in the 1998 election. And this study simply tried to determine, well, what predicts whether somebody votes for the One Nation Party, as opposed to either the Labour Party or the centre-right parties. Um, and what comes out in this sort of a study is issues around uh, Aboriginal rights and around immigration are the key, are the main issue where the far right differs from, the, say, the centre-right. So if you look at these, the difference between 92% say Aboriginal land rights have gone too far versus 63 for the centre-right um, mainstream. Similarly, number of migrants allowed to Australia, 90% of One Nation supporters versus just 42% of the centre-right. So that's a big, big difference, much bigger than issues about family member unemployed, hard to get a job, where there are significant differences, absolutely, but uh, so it, these economic things are showing up as important, but they're not as vital as those. Now, I don't expect you to understand this graph. Simply to say that uh, this is sort of quantitative research that's done in um, political science. And what Anything that has three zeros on it means that it is significant. In other words, controlling for uh, economic factors and gender and all these other factors, how important are each of these different elements. And so if you look at anything that's got a zero on it, um, again, that Aborigine opposition. Uh, interestingly, dissatisfaction with democracy. So that suggests that there's some mileage in the theory that says that a dissatisfaction with the established political parties uh, is playing into far-right support. Uh, but it, Again, I mentioned this question of immigration. Immigration really comes out front and center as a reason for um, people supporting the One Nation Party. Are there any other factors that play a role? Well, male more than female. Incidentally, that's true also of the British National Party, uh, which has, I think, got two-thirds two -thirds of its support is male. Uh, so there's a stronger male dimension to support for far-right parties. Um, that seems to be a consistent finding. However, what I would say is that that's consistent finding for support for the far right, for far right parties, but when it comes to opposition to immigration, there's not a difference between men and women. There's an equal sentiment in, in both. So it seems to be something 
the specific about casting your vote for a far-right party, partly because far-right parties have a kind of a nasty image, so that's partly maybe why women don't tend to vote for them. Um, okay. Well, we've come to the end. Uh, we have a bit of time for questions, actually, so if you want to... Do you yeah. want to just go back to slides? Yeah. Why don't you? <coughs> right. yeah. yeah, yes. I'm sorry, I was just looking at that, and I'm, something that really grabbed me is that different sentences for lawbreakers. You've actually got quite a high percentage there, right at the bottom. Yeah, yeah. stiffer sentences. On the, on right. the far right parties. I mean, it comes... Yeah. Yeah. It, it comes... It's sort of a Lockean school of thought, if that makes sense. You know, it's our land and we're going to punish everybody sort of thing. It's yeah. very, very much on lock. I mean, would that be a common trait? Well, that's a, yeah, you're right, because that's a different type of issue, because lawbreaker doesn't have much to do with, strictly speaking, has much to do with cultural change. It's just an issue about forcing law. So uh, I just want to check and see what it's, um, if there's a question, if significance was tested here. Um, no, I don't see it. So it might be that it's a correlation, but it's not significant. I don't know whether, but you're right. That's some, Often there is this law and order aspect which comes in uh, to some of the far right appeals. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it's broadly, no, it's, it's around the Western Europe. So a lot of the, the far-right parties are also making economic protectionist arguments. So anti-globalization, for example. Um, and that kind of anti-globalization rhetoric is a very strong left-wing left rhetoric. And it's a place where the, the left and the far-right would come together on that. That is, we're in favor of uh, protection against globalization in terms of the economy and jobs, and also in protection against globalization in terms of culture and migration. So both of those elements um, can be perceived as nationalist, even though one is a left-wing position. Clearly, the, the economic protectionism is a classic left-wing position. So it's really not about, I don't think you can say it's about left versus right. It's very much something that cuts through. That's part, part of what I was trying to show with this uh, upside-down graph here, is that you have a you have a kind of left-right axis, which is which side you are on this, but that that's not necessarily going to predict where you stand on the far-right question. That that will be more determined by this cultural, whether you're kind of conservative or liberal culturally. And, and that may be hard for, yeah. for, the, for the left to criticize traditional conservative to, yeah. to, to associate them because there seems to be less. Yeah, it is, you're right, because you find amongst the right supporters, the David Cameron types would be probably over here. So they're kind of actually, you know, I think you'd see within the, the Tory party, within the right, you'd find the same divisions so between the three both. Right. 
I think that's probably a fair assessment that they would be probably the furthest away from the type that you know you wouldn't find these types voting be you know. So so you have that, but but it's just again to reinforce that issue. So it raises a lot of these issues. So there's a, a, a tension within, say, the left, very clearly over the issue of immigration national identity. There's a tension in the right over the same issue. So it splits both of the parties, it splits both of the movements because it's a, it's a, it divides on, the, on a different axis. And, and actually, this corresponds to some degree to education level as well. So in a way, liberalism is, is associated to some degree with those with higher education, or to a very large degree. So you would get um, the people with university education up here, whether they're on the left or the right, whether economist or guardian, they would still be up there. And then you'd get you know, your tabloid readers down in this being very crude about it. But that, that's sort of an important way in which the, uh, the electoral maps divide it. So it's, a, it's kind of a way of saying we have to kind of think beyond the old left-right categories and think in different terms. But also, one thing that's kind of worth saying is that there hasn't been in the literature on the far right enough focus, I think, on the connections with nationalism. So it's been seen through the, through, you know, it's about class or it's about specific issues like immigration, but they haven't actually broadened it out to, to uh, raise the questions about, is it about cultural, ethnic nationalism, or is it about kind of economic protectionism? So that, that um, aspect of it hasn't been dealt with as much. Yeah. On the thing about ontological security, can that yeah. be explained by both the instrumentalist and the ethnocentrist perspective? I think ontological security is much more ethnosymbolist. So okay. this idea that you want to be part of a community that came before you and is going to outlive you, the sense of being part of a continuity in time, is more cultural. It's, it's not really about material factors as much. So I would say that's, that's definitely the case. In fact, and implying the whole ethnosymbolist versus modernist uh, schema to analysis of the far right, that hasn't really been done. People haven't thought in those terms, partly because dominant groups have been dealt with a lot less in the nationalism literature. I mean, the nationalism literature tends to focus on secession, uh, you know, minorities contending for power over a state like Lebanon. Less, less focus on uh, majority groups. Partly, part of the reason for that is simply because ethnic majorities for a long time never saw themselves as an ethnic group. They just thought, you know, if you were of French ethnicity in France, you just saw, saw yourself as basically a Frenchman. You didn't actually ever question the idea that you could be French by citizenship, but not French by ethnicity. And that's now, as you get an increase in the minority population, all of a sudden, hey, wait a minute, actually the, the majority is realizing maybe we're an ethnic group too, and we've got interests. In, so that's that's part of what's changing, I guess. That's what Skay was saying, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That, that, and then there's even parts of the country where the ethnic majority might be a minority, you know, certain certain districts, East London perhaps, parts of East London. And that heightens this this awareness of yourself as an ethnic group, which which is important, I think, for um, to explain anyway. Yeah. Any other yeah. slides before I actually there was something Let me know where uh, the whole
chosen destiny of dominant uh, nation. Dominant groups? Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That one. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's the first part, but we didn't well, this is actually this. Well, if a group senses this is not strictly applicable, but some groups sense that they are in some way special or chosen, especially if they have a religious type of nationalism. We'll, we'll come and talk about that when we talk about religious nationalism. But in some cases, there are groups that have this orientation. I don't think that's something that characterizes most West European groups, though. Um, but. Uh, can we just go a couple of slides forward? Yeah. Um, Let me know when to start. Yeah, that one. Okay, yeah. Okay. Right. I'm just looking at the graph here. It seems to be there's um, a spike, if you like. Yeah. Around 2001, 2000, 2001. Here. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, and if and you actually look at it, there's only, I think, one or two. Two countries, which is the Netherlands and I think it's Belgium, that had to drop. Everyone else has actually risen. Since 2000? Yeah. Uh, yes, yeah, most of them seem yeah. to be going up. You're right. Yes. I mean, would that, that have fought? Because, you know, that's roughly around the same time as war on terror. Right, things. right. So would that have influenced? Like, would global events actually influence? Yeah, and this is a, I think that's an important point because what's happened is that the security war on terror question is fed into yeah. uh, the far right. And what the far right's also done is to say, well, okay, we can't really just say um, France for the, for the white French. That, mm -hmm. That's not really acceptable. So what we'll do is we'll latch on to some of these other uh, uh, issues which are more respectable, such as defense of women's rights or defense of um, freedom of expression, etc., which are legitimate issues uh, and, and which are and also opposition to multiculturalism. So those are legitimate issues for the middle class, for some of those sort of liberal uh, middle classes that we looked at just a minute ago. So the attempt there is to reframe the issue as well. We're, we are, have these legitimate middle class liberal type grievances with immigration. And so to, to, to portray um, their crusade in those terms rather than in simple blood and soil terms. So to get away from the simple ethnic blood and soil appeals, and to, to couch these also in questions about defense of enlightenment values and so on, which gives, gives a certain uh, broader appeal, you could say. Yeah, so I was to just going to say, yes, I mean, that clearly by these graphs, it would have shown that there was some traction, if you like, to that sort of, oh, I don't want to say preaching or anything like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think, that, I think that's definitely true, that it definitely fed into uh, some of the support base. And you can see that in, for example, Geert Wilders' movement in, in the Netherlands, yeah. or, you know, and then that's uh, capitalized a lot on this particular issue. So it's not to say far-right parties do span. They're not all monolithic. I mean, some of them are much more focused on just ethnic change and migration. Some of them have also brought in subsidiary questions such as, you know, protect, you know defense of the Enlightenment and, and yeah. uh, claim to be more about those other questions rather than just about ethnic issues. but. The question always has to remain, how much is there true concern about the decline of the ethnic majority, even if they're also espousing some of these other concerns about security and the defense of freedom of expression. So that's that's Sorry, just another question. Would that, would that have been, would, would the far right groups been self-aware of what they're doing? I mean, would, would you know, the situation fed into the hands and said, let's maximize it, or were people suddenly listening more 
to what the original message was being said in the first place? Um, in terms of their new supporters? Yeah. I think the new supporters, so they, they give a message that includes some of the old rhetoric and some of the new rhetoric. There might be parts of the population that would gravitate to some of the new rhetoric and say, okay, well, we'll vote on this particular, for this particular reason. So they would be able to actually increase their support in that, in that way. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's the million dollar question, I guess. Is, 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 I mean, is, well, how sincere are they about their concern about those issues like freedom of expression and gender equality? I mean, maybe, uh, you know, it's, it's tough to say. But what I would say is that those appeals seem to have worked to some degree. Some people say, for example, Marine Le Pen in France, that part of the success of Marine Le Pen, like builders, has been to reframe their issues in a more kind of not civic, but it, more, it's more about liberal values than it is about race. And that kind of rhetoric has, I think, enabled it to make some, some inroads into the middle class. But it's still, these movements are still predominantly uh, based on a sort of um, white working class element in the population. 